keep Hurricane Ian in your mind a little bit. A lot of us can't get it out of our mind. Uh, do keep it in your mind a little bit. We'll be coming around to it a couple of times in the sermon um, because it sort of sets the sort of stage that uh, Paul was writing the letter to the Ephesians in, in a way. And I'll try to explain what I mean by that in just a moment. If you don't mind opening the Bible to Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to read verses 10 through the end of the chapter on page 979, Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 24. Uh, Would you please stand for God's word? This is Paul concluding his letter to the church in Ephesus that he had helped found, uh, that he knew and loved very much. He says, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would now be pleased to send your sovereign spirit powerfully upon us, the same spirit that moved your servant Paul to write these words. May that same spirit, Father, stir our hearts to hear these words to believe them, to be changed by them, to rejoice in them, and to proclaim them, Father, in our day. For Jesus' sake, amen. 
Amen. Please be seated. I think it'd be helpful if you kept the Bible open to Ephesians chapter 6, page 979 in the Pew Bible. You'll also find it on page uh, 8 in the bulletin. You can look it up online on your smartphone or whatever you do. But I think it would be helpful to have the Bible open in front of you because it is so important that this isn't from Bill Lovell or from Metrocrest PCA. Uh, This is a word from the Apostle by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it's his word that we want to look at this morning. Um, In preparing for today, I... um, did a little research and thought I'd look at some of the old commentaries on this passage. I often do that. It's part of my preparation. I enjoy doing it. And I was very happy to find that uh, a few centuries ago, there was a Puritan who wrote um, a brilliant commentary on these very verses, on verses 10 through 20, more or less. He wrote a commentary, and I'd like to show it to you this morning. Uh, This is it. Uh, This is the one-volume edition. There's this two-volume edition, but this is a convenient one-volume edition uh, by William Gurnall. Uh, He was the pastor of a church in England in the 1600s. He did a series of sermons, converted that into a book, and this is it. And it crossed my mind this morning that uh, after reading the first 20 or so pages and having dabbled in the book to touch on different things I'm going to talk about today, I would just, uh, I would conclude the sermon at this point, just tell you to read this book, all right? You'd no doubt learn a lot more. Uh, It might take you a little while longer, but uh, you'd learn a lot more because it is an excellent commentary that has been influential for hundreds of years, is still in print, and it's one of the gems of the Puritans that um, I commend to you very, very highly, and I'll be making a couple of references to it. Um, William Gurnall wrote over 600 pages on the passage I'm going to attempt to deal with in just a few minutes this Sunday morning as we wrap up a series of sermons on the book of Ephesians. And he writes so much about it because there is so much in this passage. And we're just going to be able to touch on a few of the main points. Uh, But I do commend it to your further study and reflection because Uh, Here, Paul is giving us a very rich conclusion to a very rich letter. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 10 begins with the word finally. You always get a little suspicious when a preacher uses the word finally. Uh, But here, Paul really meant it. Paul was winding up a letter that was rich, that was full of passion and doctrine and application It's a very powerful letter, and this is how he's concluding it. This is the finally part of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And I'd like to present it to you as a very important summary to the things we've been learning as we've been making our way through uh, this wonderful book. This is the finally part of the sermon. And it's it's a word, again, that's very rich in application as well as in doctrine. So he says in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's interesting that the concluding point of application is this. Stand firm in the strength of God's might. Stand firm. You know, I said it might be helpful to keep Hurricane Ian in mind. um, That terrible storm a few hundred miles from where we're gathered today. I have friends and family down there. One of the members of our church has a brother 
who was impacted directly by the storm in Fort Myers. You know, may know friends and family uh, there in, in Florida, either there in Fort Myers or elsewhere. The whole state was impacted. And in fact, I understand the impact of the storm goes up the East Coast. It was a frightful storm. And I think that hurricane is, in a way, a little metaphor for the world that we live in. We live in such a, well, it's a churning kind of place where we live. Uh, in our officer's training class, which always immediately precedes our service, we were just talking about how complicated life is on the personal level. I mean, you can read the headlines, you can Google hurricanes, and you can read about it on the macro level, but beneath each of those macro categories, there are, well, essentially infinite almost micro-categories, micro-struggles, family finances, relationships, um, managing the household, uh, how we endure in the midst of so much craziness with with an economy that's sometimes weird and and employment that's often uncertain and family relationships caught up in all of that. Well, we live in that kind of hurricane-like world and sometimes it feels literally like a hurricane. We get these little glimpses of how extremely complicated life can be. And Paul was writing this letter, not from the comfort of of a rectory or a manse somewhere, a comfortable pastor's home in the country. Uh, He wasn't writing from an Episcopal palace. You know, I went and visited England a few weeks ago, and their bishops still live in palaces, and they're extremely comfortable homes, and they're safe and secure, and they have time to reflect and think, and uh, it can be quite a comfortable feeling existence. Well, Paul wasn't writing from an Episcopal palace or a manse. Paul wrote this letter from prison. In fact, at the very end of the letter, down, uh, if you look down at verse 20, you'll see Paul says, I am an ambassador in chains. And uh, he means that Possibly literally. This is one of his prison letters. And he he was writing this letter from a jail cell. So life can can be very complicated. It can be full of complexity and lots of different things that would, as Larry prayed a moment ago, distract us. Keep us from focusing. Keep us from, from the things that are important. And so Paul, in verse 10, says, Finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Stand firm, he says down in verse 14. Stand. It's interesting that the climax, the concluding paragraphs of Paul's letter to this church in Ephesus that he's writing from jail boil down very simply to stand firm. I mean, if you think about it, that's that's a pretty modest goal in some ways. He doesn't talk about great victories. He doesn't talk about the the amazing successes. He talks about the simple call to stand firm. And of course, if you live through something like a hurricane, you know how precious it is to be able to stand firm. So that's Paul's 
concluding advice, his concluding apostolic counsel, his concluding apostolic command, if you will, because these are all imperatives. He's telling the church in Ephesus, and through them he's telling you and me, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So that's the instruction that Paul's going to go on to explain and amplify. So in verse 11, he begins talking about, interestingly, someone who hasn't had a lot to say about so far in this letter, but he's going to talk about our enemy. Very important to be clear about our enemy. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil. The Greek word for devil here is diabolo. And it's a particular angle on the devil. Uh, There are other names for the devil, Satan. Um, But diabolo in Greek is a way of describing the devil in terms of a particular thing the devil does. The word diabolo has to do with slander and lies and deceitfulness. Paul says he wants us to be able to stand against the schemes of the liar and the deceiver and the slanderer. Why? Why why would that be the angle that he would include in his concluding paragraph? Well, I think the slander ministry of the devil is something you and I need to be particularly aware of. Uh, Paul had been slandered. Uh, There were actually Christians in every church where he went who took it upon themselves to go around saying that Paul was a weak leader, he was a terrible preacher, he was someone who seemed to be unable of staying out of trouble, someone who had failure after failure after failure, and he often had to rebut these accusations. He often had to explain how his apostolic ministry had given him strength to stand through those trials and tribulations, had given him stand, grace to stand through the imprisonments, those slanders from other people that, that uh, were spread against Paul were a common feature of his life and work. And so in his concluding paragraph, he, he says those, those are the methods of the diabolical devil who slanders us. And Paul was not the first or the last Christian to be slandered. To have people say untrue, unfair, unfounded things about the servants of the gospel. I feel like in our culture today, in our cultural hurricane, one of the things that often happens, one of the things we have to learn to withstand, one of the things we have to have strength for is to deal with those lies, those unfounded accusations, the cruel, unfair things that are often leveled at Christian people. Now, when we have it coming, let's, let's put that over here. The church is full of sinners. We're capable of doing things that, that are truly wrong. That's, that is a sad reality. But often, as you know, Christians are actually charged and accused of doing things, A, we don't do, or B, things that are misinterpreted almost on purpose. 
And as a follower of Jesus, you will know what it's like to have those unfair, untrue things thrown at you. And how destabilizing that can feel. And and how we can lose our hope and our confidence. We can begin to feel very picked on and very cornered. And it's, it's just absolutely a fact that sometimes, because of those things, it makes us want to shut up about being a Christian. Right? It's very tempting just to avoid the drama and keep it to yourself. Right? Did you know that's a scheme of the devil? That is a scheme of the devil. That is something the devil does. He sucks our confidence and our hope and our joy out of us and reduces us to, well, sometimes a silent, empty witness where we just don't mention Jesus. And I think the workplace in 21st century America and across the West and many other places has become like that. We just... Avoid the drama. I'm not, I'm not going to talk about it. It's not for nothing that Paul, if you look further down the page, uh, to halfway through verse 18, Paul says, uh, verse 19, uh, make supplication for all the saints and also for me, Paul says in verse 19, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. You know, it's interesting to me that Paul, the apostle, had to ask for prayers that he would be able to declare the gospel. Now, he had a unique apostolic calling. He had unique pressures, unique experiences of persecution. But it's very interesting to me that Paul, the great Paul, asked for prayers about that. We need prayers too. We need strength too to stand firm, to be witnesses, to be proclaimers, the declarers of the truth as we ought to speak. Because that's what the slanderer, the enemy, the liar does. It's one of his schemes. He has a related scheme. And I, I don't know which is more effective. That, that's, that's, been, that's proved very effective. There's another aspect of the diabolical work, the accusing, lying, deceiving work of Satan, the devil. That's our own self-slander, our own self-accusations. You see, the devil knows that we're sinners. You know you are a sinner. The devil delights in reminding us of that. Who are you? You did this, and you did that. You made this mistake. You made that mistake. Shut up. Who are you? Be quiet. Don't say a word about Jesus. Who are you to say anything? People try to use that on Paul, and I imagine there were moments at which Paul was aware. Wait a minute. I'm talking about Jesus I persecuted the followers of Jesus. The accuser, one of his schemes is to use our previous mistakes, our ongoing weaknesses. He uses those against us. He slanders us to ourselves. 
he overwhelms with, with guilt or shame or a sense of inadequacy. He loves to beat us down. He loves to, to silence our witness by just in this evil way reminding us again and again and again of our broken sinfulness without ever a reference to the fact that Jesus has dealt with your mistakes and my mistakes. Jesus actually died on the cross for our mistakes. Jesus has dealt once and for all with the mistakes you and I have made. They're they're real. In fact, Paul put them out on the dining room table. You know? Okay, Satan. Okay, the devil. You're going to accuse me of my inadequate failures. Here they are. And over and over again in his letters, he'll make reference to his own worst mistakes. The very kind of thing you would never talk about. Les and I were joking this week. When I was a little boy, uh, I had a disagreement with my mother about a, a, a sandwich about I was, that I was going to have for lunch at school. And I told a terrible lie. I was in the fourth grade. And I actually said that my fourth grade teacher had uh, made me go into the boys' bathroom and clean up some vomit of another little boy. And because I'd been in the bathroom cleaning up the vomit from the other little boy, I was unable to eat my pineapple sandwich. And I'm not kidding you, for years, for years, I couldn't talk about that. I was so ashamed of it. I was so embarrassed. My mother had found out. The teacher had found out. I mean, even standing here today, I remember that was a really bad week for your pastor. And it's really only been recently. When Leslie and I got married, and I told her, big mistake. Uh, <laughs> then I got to where I told my kids, and I've even told my grandkids, because you just might as well put it right out on the table. Well, believe me, there have been a lot of worse mistakes than that one. But it kind of makes a point. That's what Paul would do. And he, he would do it about the, the biggest things in his life. He would drag them out on the table. And he'd actually use them to show the amazing grace of God. That God had forgiven Paul for persecuting and killing Christians, including Stephen's. The whole story. Talk about dragging it out on the kitchen table, the dining room table. In the book of Acts, the whole story is there. And Paul would retell it. He wasn't wallowing in it. He was just pointing out, if God dealt with that, what on earth could you have done? Or what could I have done that God couldn't deal with? In in Romans, Paul says that if God is for us, who can be our accuser? Who Who can separate us? If God himself has dealt with it, if he, the great judge, has dealt with it, who on earth can separate us from his love? Well, the answer in Romans is no one. That's the same answer in Ephesians. Whatever our mistakes may be, whatever schemes the devil may have, whether it's outside us or from within our own hearts, those are evil schemes 
They're from the slanderer, the accuser, the one who reminds us of all those things. They should have no power over us. They need have no power over us. Because Jesus has dealt once and for all with all of it. So you think of the worst thing you've ever done. In Christ, Jesus has dealt with it. Think of the ten worst things you've ever done. Think of the hundred worst things you've ever done. Think of the thousand worst things you've ever done. Jesus has dealt with it. He has dealt with it. So Paul says, we want to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil because he is our enemy. He wants to silence us. He wants to distract us. He wants us in the midst of the hurricane to lose our hope, to lose our confidence, to be overwhelmed. Paul says, you may be able to stand against all of it. And he's going to tell us in a few verses how. Now let's turn to that. There's a second point. We have our enemy on one hand, verses 11 to 12. And now he's going to tell us about our whole armor, verses 13 to 17. By the way, uh, Paul makes it plain that the devil's not all alone. It's got rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. Paul says those are actual spiritual forces of evil. We're naive if we think we're contending against circumstances or happenstance or fleshly things. If we think that's all we're facing, we're naive. So Paul wants to underscore our enemy is a powerful enemy. We mustn't be naive about that. It's the devil and all the powers of darkness. That word cosmic powers. Some of you play uh, video games. There's a video game, I think Gods of War. Some of you might know the the game Gods of War. Um, The word Gods of War is the word that they use here. That's cosmic powers. Um, I've got it highlighted there in Greek on page 8. If you care to read along, it says, if you look on the fourth line, kratoras, that's gods of war. That's the cosmo, cosmic. Cosmic powers. Kratos is the adversary, I think, in that game. So Paul says, I want you to understand who you're dealing with. You're dealing with cosmic powers. Those are our enemies. So he's not dismissing our enemy. He's actually emphasizing our enemy. He wants us to know the the schemes of such a dark, malevolent force matter. We're very silly Christians if we just dismiss these things, if we think we can deal with them on our own with, with minimal effort, right? If we think we can, oh, I'll pop in at church every few weeks and I might open the Bible. I might say a prayer over meals. I think that's the way a lot of us deal with our enemy, but Paul said, let's be clear. <laughs> You're dealing with cosmic forces. And when you see something like Hurricane Ian, well, you get, a, you get a little idea. Swirling powers. Brothers and sisters, we're sitting in the middle of a cosmic hurricane. There are dark forces. 
around us. That's the schemes of the devil. And so Paul gives us an important thing for us to remember, an essentially important thing for us to understand if we're going to contend with our enemy, if we're going to face our enemy. And he calls it armor. Uh, Look there at verse uh, 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, again, to stand firm. He's using that same idea. The, the, the climax of the book is that we would simply stand. That's all. Stand firm. Now, there's a lot wrapped up in that. But it boils down to something so simple to stand firm. And he he ties it to this idea of armor. Now he's going to give us six specific aspects of this armor. He's going to talk about the belt of truth. Had a good conversation last night with Susan's brother about the belt of truth and how the belt of truth, this um, Gurnall here, actually comments that this belt of truth, which is the first in the list, is an essential part of it. Because the belt holds everything else in place. And Gurnall wrestled with truth in what sense? Well, the truth of the gospel, he said, that's true. But he said, actually, Gurnall took the position, I think he's got a point, that this belt of truth represents the sincerity of the Christian life, the, the earnestness, the seriousness of the Christian life. Paul is saying, put, gird yourself. The noun doesn't actually show up here. It's a verb. Gird yourself with this truth. That's, that's the first step he describes in this idea of putting on the armors to sincerely, seriously engage with the gospel. This is not a light thing. This isn't a small thing. This isn't something we dare do all on our lonesome. So he says, gird yourself, first of all, put on this belt of sincerity, this belt of truth. He says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. It's interesting the way he describes it that way. It's something external to ourselves. He doesn't say, come on, try harder, be good enough. He says, put on this breastplate. Of righteousness. It's, it's something that's external to us in a very important sense. It's the righteousness, it's been called an alien righteousness. It's not our own righteousness. It wouldn't make any sense to say, put on your own righteousness. Well, he says, put on this external righteousness. Where does that come from? That's from Jesus. The righteousness that Paul had was not the righteousness of his own sinless life. It was the righteousness of Jesus' sinless life. So he put on, he girded himself with the truth, and he, he said, put on this breastplate, because the devil can't get through the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. So he said, put on the righteousness. He, and the third thing, he talks about, Again, the, the, there's, there's not a noun in this sentence, but he, he talks about shodding your feet. Putting something on your feet, he says. Uh, putting on the, right, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. He says, put that on your feet. May that stir you and give you readiness. To contend for the gospel. Verse 16, he says... Take up the shield of faith. 
Again, the, the schemes of the devil. Well, the shield of faith can protect us from the schemes of the devil. The lies of the enemy. Wherever they come from. The shield of faith. Which, with which, he says, you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. See, it's the, the enemy, the evil one. Who's hurling these darts at us, these lies, these accusations. Paul says this shield will protect you. The shield of faith. will extinguish them. And then he says in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. Uh, I read um, another one of the commentaries I read was this much shorter one by Sinclair Ferguson. And uh, Dr. Ferguson points out how important this helmet is. It guards our minds. It guards our, our perceptions. Put on this helmet of salvation. It will protect us from the, the lies, the assaults, the darts of the evil one, the enemy, the liar, the accuser. And then the last in the list, number six, is the sword of the Spirit. Many preachers have pointed out the fact that it's, it's the sword alone that is both um, a, a weapon for defense and also a weapon for offense. It's, it's this sword which is our tool in not only defending ourselves and protecting ourselves, but it's also the sword with which the kingdom of God, the the gospel kingdom that Paul was commissioned as an ambassador to proclaim goes forth. It's the way you and I, as weak as we are, as inadequate as we are, it's this sword of the word of God, Paul says, which makes it possible for poor, weak, inadequate sinners, failures like you and me, to go forward, not only protected, but with the power of God himself. these six different aspects of the whole armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. And he walks through and describes how each has a role to play in our walk with Christ and, and our ability to stand firm in Christ. It's interesting that two metaphors Paul uses in the Ephesians over and over again is walking in the Lord and standing in the Lord. Both, both are part of the Christian life and both are metaphors for what's going on in our experience and our understanding. We're able to walk, we're able to stand. Um, I want to underscore one thing, however. Uh, if you back up to verse... 11, where it says the whole armor, and then go down to verse 13, where it says the whole armor. Uh, I want to draw your attention to something important. If you look at the Greek text on page 8, second line, you'll notice there's a word highlighted. It's uh, panoplion. You'll see the same word highlighted a few verses later in verse 13, panoplion. Uh, that is a noun. Uh, and it's a, a noun that describes the armor that a Roman soldier would wear. Very, I mean, you can Google Roman armor, and it'll 
on Google, it'll show you the different elements of a Roman soldier's uniform, his armor that he would wear, the breastplate, the helmet, the sword, the girdle. shows it all. It's, it's very well known. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's not hard to think why that would be on Paul's mind uh, as he's a prisoner in chains, uh, looking around the jail, looking around the building, wherever it was that he was, possibly in Rome. We don't know for sure where he was writing this from, but under Roman arrest. He'd have seen more than a few Roman soldiers. So that had been on his mind. The Old Testament is full of references to soldiers and the armor that soldiers of Israel wore. Paul had this in his mind as he was talking to these besieged Christians like you and me, living in crazy times. So what he's describing here, when he describes the the whole armor, or these six different aspects of the whole armor, he's not really describing six different things. He's describing one thing, panoplion, the whole armor. It's not like we get up one morning and say, well, today I think I'll wear the shoes of uh, the gospel, and maybe I'll put on the helmet. I'll leave the breastplate. I'll leave the girdle here. I'll leave the, the belt over here. I don't really think I'll need those today. It's not like that. It's, it's not like that. It, that. That's taking his illustration and, and breaking it down in a way he didn't. He was describing the panoply on the whole thing. He said, He's actually saying you stand firm, not with picking and choosing from this list and hoping you get the things you need that day. What he's actually describing is the whole of the, the Christ identity, taking on to ourselves the fullness of what Jesus is and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And we do it by remembering these different aspects. We do it by remembering the the righteousness of Christ. We do it by remembering to protect our thoughts. We do it by remembering the power of His Word. So it's it's one thing. It's this panoplion. We we get the English word uh, panoply. uh, Panoply. Uh, This idea of a whole set of something. And that's what He says to put on. Put on that whole armor. And then he breaks out the different aspects of the whole armor. A Roman soldier didn't go out with half of his uniform on. Right? You didn't go out with the, with the shoes on, but you forgot your shield and you forgot your sword. No, you put on the whole armor. And that's what Paul is telling the Ephesian Christians to do, is to put on Christ. Sincerely, put him on. Engage with the things Paul has told us earlier in Ephesians. Remember, that's where he began. He began his letter to the church in Ephesus by reminding them and us everything that Jesus has done for us. So Paul is saying, put that on. Take hold of what Jesus Christ has done. Now live into that. Let your minds go into that. Let your wills go into that, he says to us. Put on that whole armor. I want to mention quickly three secret weapons. Uh, one he mentions, and Gurnall points this out, how verse 17 flows immediately into verse 18. He says, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You might expect a period. There's not. There's a comma. There's no period there in Greek. 
He says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Doesn't give it a heading. I'm going to say that makes it a little bit of a secret. A secret the world doesn't understand. The world doesn't understand prayer. The world thinks when Christians pray, it's some sort of superstitious idea where, you know, we, we, we turn something over. We, we're so aware of how poor and inadequate we are. We grab hold of any crutch available, and uh, it so happens prayer is a handy crutch. And so Christians come limping in with our, with our little crutches, uh, hoping that our superstitious prayers will make a difference. I think that's pretty much what the world thinks of with prayer. When you hear atheists criticize Christian prayer, that's what they talk about. It's a crutch. It's empty. It's just something for weak people to hang on to. Well, Paul sees it very differently. He says we're to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And he's putting this in the context of putting on the whole armor of Christ, putting on the whole armor of God's righteousness and God's salvation, putting on Christ that leads him directly into prayer. Because yes, we are weak. Yes, we are inadequate. But we're not superstitious. When we pray, we know that what we're actually doing is in our weakness, connecting to one who is infinitely powerful and infinitely holy and infinitely righteous. And he's invited us to do that. That's, we're his children. Let me tell you, my kids can call me 24-7, anytime, night or day, and Leslie and I will fight over who's going to get the phone first. And God's like that. We can go to God with anything. We can go to God with our fears, our anxieties. We can go to him in the middle of the hurricane. We can go to him from the jail cell and he will take that call and he will hear us out and he is on our side and he will give us the strength for what we need to do. It doesn't say that he's going to snatch you out of that jail cell, Paul. Paul very possibly didn't live to get out of the chains he was in. He We don't know how much longer he lived. We don't know all the circumstances. Interestingly enough, he didn't dwell on that. We do know, tradition tells us, that he died. We do know he died. And we know he he, he died uh, a martyr. Just like Stephen had died a martyr, Paul died a martyr. And Paul wasn't the last Christian to die a martyr. So Christians are not delivered because God loves us so much he's going to take us out of every challenge, every problem, every crisis. Every hurricane, he's not. He doesn't promise that. What he promises instead is infinitely better if you understand the whole picture. What he actually promises us is to give us the strength we need to get through what we're going through because our ultimate destination is him. He's our ultimate destination. The answer to our prayers is sometimes, Lord, deliver me, make the problem go away. But God has an eternal perspective and God knows the ultimate answers and God knows the the best time for whatever's happening. And we may not get it, we may not understand it in this life, but one day when our eyes are properly opened, we can really see, we'll say, Lord, you do all things well. You do all things well. 
And you used that crisis in my life or in the life of other people. I didn't know how you were doing that. Well, Paul learned that. And so he brings up this secret weapon of prayer. Whatever you're facing, whatever struggle you may be going through, know this. You can pick up the prayer phone and you can talk, call your heavenly father. And he loves you and he will listen to you. And what you're going through matters to him. There's secret power that comes from knowing that. There's the secret power of the Spirit. Paul several times here mentions the Spirit. It's the, it's the sword of the Spirit. It's praying in the Spirit. What does that mean? That means that as we pray in Christ, the Spirit takes hold of our prayers. C.S. Lewis said that very often the answer to our prayers is in, is in the way we are changed by our prayers. And I think there's truth to that. The Spirit gets involved. The Spirit grabs hold of the wheel in our prayers. And prayer helps us to grow in Christ. Prayer teaches us over the long haul what's important, what to ask for, how to ask, to understand the eternal perspectives. That's the work of the Spirit. And Paul says pray at all times like that. That's a a secret power. That's, That's something the world doesn't understand. Paul understood it. You and I understand it more and more, I hope. There's another secret power I want to just mention very briefly. And it's one that it's actually throughout the letter. There's a third secret power. The third secret power, it's what we're doing right now. You see, the secret power of life in Christ is that we're alive in Christ with a bunch of other people. The church. The church. When Paul, the apostle, is in prison and he's overwhelmed and he's aware of his inadequacy, he reaches out to this bunch of sinners in Ephesus and he says, pray for me. Pray for me. The great apostle asks a bunch of ordinary Christians, please pray for me. See, we pray for each other. It's one of the things we do in church. Will just did it. Prayed for a young couple getting married. Prayed for people in the midst of a hurricane. We pray together. You know, one of the reasons I hope you will always show up at church. It's not because of our statistics. It's not because of our budget. It's because we desperately need each other. I need you. You need me. We need each other. We lean on each other. We trust each other. We confess our sins to one another. We learn from each other. We're admonished by one another. We're encouraged by one another. We share hardships together. We share joys together. We pray together. We witness together. We work together for the gospel. And for almost 34 years, this little church through thick and thin, through hurricane after hurricane, has locked arms and prayed to the sovereign God. And he's given us grace 34 years later. Guess what? Metrocrest is standing here. Not one of us is strong enough to do that on our own. Not one of us. But together, in Christ, he makes it possible 
for broken and weak people to put on Jesus and stand together and withstand the hurricanes that bombard us and blast us in the world, at home, in our own consciences. It's, it's that, that fellowship. Every you, that, just about every you that Paul uses here in this, uh, in this letter. It, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Greek scholar now, I've taken six classes. <laughs> and I can tell you, I believe... Almost every case of the word you, Y-O-U, it is the plural. He's speaking to the church, the, the fellowship of the saints. That's how he closes his letter. Verse 21, he says, That you, plural, may also know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you, plural, everything. I have sent him to you, plural, for this very purpose, that you, plural, may know how we are, and that he may encourage your, plural, hearts. It's the church. And then in verse 23 and 24, this is how Paul closes his letter. It's a promise. Peace. You know, that sentence doesn't have a verb in it. (laughs) Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith. There's no verb there. In Greek. It says, Eranos, peace to the brothers, the Adelphoi or the Delphus, love with faith. You see, it's it's a promise that comes from outside ourselves. Paul says it's from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the ones who hear our prayers, the one through whom we pray. He, they are committed to our peace. They are committed to the love which comes from faith. They are committed to you and me standing and persevering and walking through our mixed up human relationships and all the complexities of life. They are committed to us. And so the promise in the middle of the hurricane is He doesn't promise to take away the hurricane. He promises instead to take care of us. To strengthen us. To give us peace. In verse 24, grace. Grace. So that's how Paul concludes this letter to the Ephesians. Uh, I very highly commend Gurnall. But I honestly think that sums up what Paul has to say. It's to put confidence and hope in the God who loves us, the God who died for us, the God who sustains us, the Spirit, the Father, the Son, working together in holy unity for you and me who love Him and are loved by Him with a love incorruptible. Made incorruptible not because of us, made incorruptible because of Him and by Him who will sustain us and strengthen us.